Hey everyone, and welcome to Sincerely Letty. I'm your host, Letty Shoemate, here to bring you truth and knowledge about history, social issues, life, and more to help you connect the dots and see the bigger picture that is so necessary in our society today. First thing I want to start with is informing you all of a change in my podcast. So I've decided that instead of doing a podcast episode each Wednesday, um, I'm going to actually now change that to every other week. So every other Wednesday, I'll have a podcast episode out. So instead of next Wednesday, the 18th, it would be the next Wednesday, which is the 25th. So the 25th is whenever I will have another episode available. And I want to be transparent with you all and honest, so I'm just going to tell you why I decided to do that. I want to have enough time to do the research I need and deliver the podcast episodes coming up the way that I really want to. So yeah, um, I have a series coming up and it requires quite a bit of research um, and planning and even more than these or the last eight of mine have. So I just want to be able to give the best episodes possible and I want to have enough time and I'm telling y'all before I know it every week it's time to record my podcast again and I'm like wow where's the last week gone so anyway all that being said every other week now you'll have a Sincerely Lady podcast episode so after this week the next one will be September the 25th but in the meantime Please continue, if you have not already, go back and listen to my previous podcast episodes. Please share on social media. Please tell people about it because I'm um, learning that word of mouth is also um, how a lot of people are getting to know or finding my podcast. (laughs) And also, if you could go on, um, if you have Apple Podcasts, uh, go on and review my podcast. podcast because that's what allows it to come up in the search bar and or like in front of or on top of other um, podcast names so if you could that'd be wonderful um review it that'd also be so fantastic I just um want to continue spreading the word now that all of that is out of the way I'm going to go right into the week in review in history so going to start with September 5th, 1912. On this day, an innocent black man whose name was Walter Johnson was actually lynched by a white mob in Princeton, West Virginia. He was accused of assaulting a white girl, and after he was accused, a lynch mob kidnapped Mr. Johnson from police custody and strung him to a telegraph pole in the presence of the sheriff, armed guards, and the judge. After the lynching, authorities acknowledged that Mr. Johnson had actually been wrongly identified and innocent of the alleged assault. But, you want to know something else? No one was ever arrested or prosecuted for his lynching. So even though they knew that he didn't do it and um, people murdered him, which really they murdered him because he was black. And if you are accused of doing anything to anyone white, especially a white woman, that was just means for you to die. Um, but even with all that, they just still didn't even convict anyone. 
That was in 1912, not 1812, 1912. Next up, September the 8th, 1959, Clyde Kennard applied for admission to an all-white school, which was um, Mississippi Southern College. He applied there for the second time and vowed to sue for racial discrimination if he got rejected. So Mr. Kennard's credentials met the criteria for him to be admitted there, but he could not provide references from five alumni in his home county. This is one of the requirements that allowed the school to maintain the segregated student body and reject any non-white applicants without broadcasting a white-only policy. I mean, just listen at that, okay? The school required you to be able to list five alumni in your home county. Now, granted, they probably just did this to anyone who was not white trying to attend as a way for them not to be able to attend. Because if you're black, first of all, you don't know five alumni from that college because the college is an all-white college. So yeah, it was just a setup anyway. I just want you all to grasp that fact. And the fact that even though the school did not um, like broadcast that they were a white-only school, still in what they did spoke louder than what they didn't say. So that's very common today in our country whenever people say, oh, well, that, that isn't racist or that, no, they, they didn't say that. No, but they did though in their actions and in what they did not allow and, what, in, and in what they didn't say. So just wanna make that um, very clear for you all. And then one last one, September the 10th, 1963, white students started to withdraw from the newly integrated Tuskegee High School in Alabama. Why? Because they did not want to attend school with black students, period. Within a week, all the white students, there are 275 of them, stop attending the school. Now, you mean to tell me that people look back in history and they say things like, we never acted this way. We never were, we never got so offended. That's what a lot of white people would say. And I'm like, but y'all would like leave a whole school though, because you didn't want to be in a building with someone who was black. Let's just take that in, okay? Let's just take in really who's fragile, all right? Let's just take in the racism and the hate with this. And now this was 1963. This is not a long time ago. And that's another thing that I wish more people would grasp is the fact that just because you see the word history doesn't mean that it was 300 years ago. No, mm -mm, history is 10 years ago. History was five years ago. And this date, 1963, both my parents were alive, okay? My dad was 18 years old. This is not ancient history. Some of these people who went to this school are probably still alive today. White people who got up and left, they're still alive today. So it's important to put that kind of stuff into context and yeah.
it's just necessary to really take time to um, fully understand the scope of things and the actions of other people and how now a lot of people want to say that oh well black people are just not happy and they're just willing to get they're just getting offended by everything and I'm looking at this and I'm like what you don't want to go to the same school (laughs) okay so who's really the one or who are really the ones um with the problem here speaking of Alabama um I don't know if you've read the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson but you need to it is an incredible book and if you don't know who Brian Stevenson is he's brilliant a phenomenal black man and he um, started their Equal Justice Initiative, which he talks about in in his book. And there's a movie coming out in December. It's a Just Mercy movie, and I cannot wait for it. Uh, Brie Larson is in it, Michael B. Jordan, Jamie Foxx, and I saw a few other names and faces, but I'm so ready for it. If you want to know another book to read very soon, you need to read Just Mercy. I can't wait. Y'all, I also just realized at the beginning of this episode, I did not tell you about the episode. (laughs) So I'm going to be talking about White Fragility, which you can tell from the title, and what that is, how it applies to white people, and what it looks like. I'm just going to go into details of it and give you all some context and I'm also going to give you some questions that you can ask yourself as a white person if you are in a situation or having a conversation with a black person or another person of color and how you can check yourself but before I jump into that I do want to talk about one more piece of news the Papa John's founder okay John Schnatter Schnatter Schnatter. Schnatter sounds a lot better. (laughs) Um, And how he donated a million dollars to Simmons College, which is a historically black college in Kentucky. So he announced, well, this donation was announced um, on Wednesday the 4th during a press conference with the Simmons College president, Reverend Kevin Cosby. So apparently the John H. Snatter Family Foundation will um, be the ones that give out the funds on John Schneider's behalf. And this donation, though, comes a year after Schneider was forced to step down as chairman of Papa John's after he was caught saying the N-word during a meeting. He was complaining, so apparently what happened last year is he was complaining about the controversy surrounding um, his criticism of the um, NFL's response to players protesting whenever he used the slur. So what he said was, Colonel Sanders called blacks niggers, referring to the founder of KFC. And the restaurant chain experienced a lot of backlash. A lot of black people were very upset about this. I was upset about this. This was very problematic. I was like, this is not, this is not okay. I don't care if you do have, if you are one of the um, biggest pizza chains in the country, it doesn't matter. That is a problem. And so apparently also 
the um, like Reverend Cosby at Simmons College sees no problem with this. Uh, he's he basically said that what we say and mean is often misrepresented, but the pain of words, the sting fades. Actions speak louder because a lack of action through generations has caused pain throughout the generations. The black community has heard far too many false words, but today, this action, this generosity, specifically for black education and uplift, speaks louder. I want you all to know that I do hope that people change their ways. Yes. And I also want people to learn from their mistakes and how harmful their actions are. However, in this situation, I feel like this is just one where John Schneider is just trying to buy back the black community with a million dollars. Because that's what he's doing. I just, I'm having a real hard time believing that someone who has those beliefs has not done anything else to show where he's trying to learn and trying to change his ways really has any other intentions besides his image in donating a million dollars to this historically black college. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going on with this redemptive story. Okay? I'm just not buying it. You can't just buy back the black community's trust or whatever you want to call it because now you're realizing how much has hurt your image and how much is hurting your bank account or if it's even hurting his bank account. It's probably not. But we've got to stop with this whole oh, well, he had good intentions and that's enough. But it's not enough. It's not enough. And I don't believe that it's okay to just act like you're this change person because you can throw out a million dollars to black people. Anyway, I could talk about that, y'all, for another hour, but I'm not going to. Let's just get right into the episode for this week. White fragility. I mentioned this previously in another podcast episode, I think a couple of my podcast episodes, but white fragility is actually a newer term. It's newer within, as in the last few years, it's come on the scene. And I don't know if you've heard of this book or if you've read this book, there's a book by Robin DiAngelo and it's called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. And it is a wonderful book. It's one of those books that white people need to have if they're trying to understand how they perpetrate racism, if they're trying to understand how to be anti-racist, if they're understand if they're trying to understand like why exactly you being white even matters when it comes to conversations about racism, discrimination, prejudice, those sorts of things. This is what Robin DiAngelo said about white fragility and how she defined it, rather. White people in North America live in a a social environment that protects and insulates them from race-based stress. 
This insulated environment of racial protection builds white expectations for racial comfort, while at the same time lowering the ability to tolerate racial stress, leading to what I refer to as white fragility. White fragility is a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. These moves include the outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. These behaviors, in turn, function to reinstate white racial equilibrium. So yeah, there's a definition of what white fragility is. And actually, in this episode, I'm going to be using information from Robin D'Angelo's book. So I'm going to go ahead now, ahead of time, and give her credit for some of the information I'll be giving you. But it's also, um, it's not just all from from this book. It's also what I've seen and um, my knowledge of white fragility and how I've seen it playing out and how I've seen it affecting me personally having conversations and how it's affected other black people having trying to have conversations with white people. I'm also going to like, you know, connect some dots for you all, which I do with every episode whenever it comes to social issues, history, and context. So for a lot of white people, the slight suggestion that being white has meaning causes upset, okay, causes defensiveness. And I realize the more I look at the word white fragility, the fragility part was meant to capture just how little it takes to upset white people racially. Doesn't take much. Let me tell you, does not take much. So whenever I've said things to white people, calling them out on racism, saying that they are complicit in, um, like, in, well, in racism, and point out their implicit biases or anything like that, there comes defensiveness, okay? I won't say it happens with every white person, but most, okay? (laughs) There comes defensiveness, whether they voice it outright, like right then, or whether their body language changes, okay? Whether their facial expression changes, whether their mood changes, their attitude towards me changes, okay? Those are subtle um, indications that they're becoming defensive, Yes, I pay attention to body language and all that stuff in, in conversations because it's, it's necessary to pay attention to what's not being said, especially whenever you're having hard conversations. And then, though, with some white people, it's become, well, I'm not like that. I am, I'm, I'm not racist. Oh, okay, well, let's just not jump yet, okay? <laughs> We're just trying to have a conversation here. But it does, it erupts in defensiveness. And... I think it's a kind of like weaponized defensiveness because there are weaponized hurt feelings, weaponized tears, um, weaponized emotions. And if you look at it this way, and um, Robin D'Angelo kind of touches on this in her book, it's a kind of like white racial bullying. So it's a different way to look at it. And another way to um, see through what you're actually doing, whether you realize you're doing it or not. I'm going to talk about white progressives for a few minutes because it's important to include this group of people whenever you're having any discussion about, well, progress, for lack of better words. First, though, let's look at what the word progressive means, okay? Because 
I noticed there are a lot of words thrown around social media today and they become words that people use interchangeably. But it's important to understand what it is that you're saying. So a progressive is someone who favors implementing social reform, liberal ideas, they're growing, they're continuing to work on themselves or on society, yada yada, okay? Sounds great, right? Right. But actually, white progressives can be the most challenging because they tend to be so certain that they're not the problem, okay? So they take themselves and put themselves in a different category from other white people, and I'll get into why this this is an issue. It's problematic, okay? I think the worst fear of a well-intended white person is that they accidentally say something racist. But then it's like, if you don't say something racist, then how will you know what you're saying is racist? And that's a component that I believe is missing today in this work people are trying to do towards anti-racism is actually, like, there's, there aren't enough white people who, who are white progressives who want to mess up, okay? They just try to walk this perfect narrow line and I'm like, yeah, but if you don't mess up, you won't know really how to fix what you're doing. It's like there's this identity attached to this idea of being completely free of racism, okay? Like, some people think, I'm not racist at all, I'm doing the work, I'm not making these mistakes like these other white people are. But that also comes with another necessary understanding. We need to really grasp the definition of racism And I believe that white people need to understand their role in perpetuating it. Because there are a lot of misconceptions whenever it comes to what a racist is. So most white people believe that a racist is, number one, a person. Number two, a person who holds this conscience, conscious and aware dislike of people based on race, and three, someone who, in, who intentionally seeks to be mean to them. So those are three things, individual, conscious, intentional. And if we look at racism with this definite, or a racist, I'm sorry, with this definition, virtually then that means that all white people are exempt from racism. Why? Because when I said number two, the one about someone holding conscious dislike of people based on race, you know, white people be like, that's, that's not me. I don't not like someone because they're darker than me. Okay. Or the number three, the one about intentionally seeking to be mean to other people. White people would think, I'm not mean to someone else because they have a different skin color than me. But see, this is the issue because there needs to be a bigger understanding that racism is a system that is infused across all institutions, politics, practices, traditions. Like, it's a system we're all in and we can't be exempt from it. I can't be exempt from it as a black person. 
I actually am impressed by this system, okay? And you as a white person, you perpetuate this system because you are white. As long as you have this idea of a racist being a person who walks around and is mean to other people because they're black or because they're brown, or you have this idea of a racist being someone who treats other people horribly because of the color of their skin, then you're going to be defensive. Because see, here's the thing is, white people have been shaped by a racist system. That's something that you can't help, okay? You have racist biases and patterns and investments, and you're gonna feel offended by that because you've been shaped by this society, okay? Because you're white. And this probably sounds like a broken record, but I say it often because people need to continue to hear it. This is something that people need to hear constantly, every day, so they can confront it, learn to deal with it, and learn what to do with this information. So if you actually think to yourself that racism is the system that was, that you are inevitably impacted by, it's really not so much about, oh, well, this is bad. Oh, this is good. No, it's actually just you recognizing as a white person, I have benefited from this system. I have been socialized into this system. And what am I going to do about it? If I tell a white person they just did something racist, okay, and this white person is a white person who believes that racism is just a mean person who's not nice to people, then they're going to think I've just put them on the bad side of it and that I've just basically said that they're immoral. And so then in turn, that white person is going to feel like they have to defend their moral character. And they will. But that's not the there needs to be a paradigm shift here and there there needs to be a shift in thinking whenever a black person tells you that you just said or did something that was racist it is not that i'm saying you're a mean person you're a terrible person no but what you did was racist what you said was racist and there is a way to not do that again and you have to realize that that's part of what anti being anti-racist is and i'm not even going to lie there's not much of an in-between here whenever it comes to people who want to double down on me whenever i call them out or bring something to their attention and then people who actually want to have a conversation about um what just happened with me telling them that what they did or said was racist. There's really not an in-between there, okay? And there aren't many white people who that I've come across who are just completely willing to have a conversation about it. It's not like they sit down and say, oh, that, that was racist, please tell me how. No, no, I'm gonna tell y'all now. And there aren't, <laughs> have not come across that very much. But also there's this other thing, like, you know, there's this other component that comes with this where White people want black people to reassure them, tell them that they're not bad people, tell them, oh, but I still love you, and basically take our feelings and put them to the side and um, make them feel comfortable. No, no, that's going to have to stop because 
that is where the problem continues to lie because then we're still not allowing white people or showing white people that their emotional stamina needs to basically level up, okay? Because then essentially what happens is the burden is placed on us. This has happened to me, personally. It's happened to me many times where I would tell a white person that what they did was racist and then there's all these emotions that come out and they expect me to comfort them and make them feel better. But what about the fact that I actually do not in any way have the ability to turn off how I wish to perceive what America does to me and what the system does to me. And this is also where a conversation about good intentions comes into the picture because I've noticed that often people want to say, oh, but that person meant well. Oh, they're just, that's not exactly what they meant. Oh, well, they're just, they're just trying. And there's this danger of assuming good intentions, okay? Robin D'Angelo actually talks about this in her book and, um, Basically, intentions are irrelevant. It's nice to know that you had good intentions. Great. Wonderful. But the impact of what you did was harmful. So intent is not greater than the harm that was done. I say this a lot to people. And I believe that we need to let go of our intentions and look at the impact, focus on the impact, focus on how what she said was harmful, focus on how what she said hurt someone else. I mean, whenever you think about this outside of race, if you say something to someone at work that hurts their feelings about their work ethic or something, or how they didn't get something done, You may not have meant any harm, and then you think to yourself, oh, I didn't mean to hurt her feelings about not meeting the deadline, and you want to be apologetic, right? So think about any situation where you have harmed someone and how that wasn't your intention. What did you do? Like, you may not have said anything to them, or you may have tried to right your wrong. So why is that so hard for white people to do whenever it comes to realizing what they've said was harmful and how it impacted a black person or a person of color. There are groups sometimes that will come together and discuss racism and experiences and those sorts of things. And then there's sometimes a list of guidelines or there are ground, ground rules that are set. And these groups have black people in them, white people in them, people of color in them. And if you really pay attention to groups like this, And after reading Quite Fragility, I really started to think on groups that I know that exist. And I was like, wow, you know what? That might actually be true. So if you think about sometimes the guidelines that are put into place, um, they're about maintaining white comfort. Another problem. Because what happens is there's this power, power relation that's at play. Okay, it's like a like a tug of war kind of thing. And people are in different power positions in that room. So 
understanding this comes with knowing that the very things that might make a white person feel comfortable may be exactly what says to a person of color or a black person, don't be you, don't be yourself, don't be authentic, do not show your emotions, do not show when something I said hurt you, do not get upset, do not get angry. But then, that, see, that's still centering quite comfort. So you're actually then, in centering quite comfort, you're still enabling white people to have their fragility, even if it looks like what you're doing is good. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. And I'm very glad that there are groups of white people, black people who have you, who um, are trying to talk about these things. I just think it's also necessary to look at the dynamics of said groups and look at whose emotions you're actually centering during the conversation. And you know what? I'm going to tell you all something else. Black people and people of color working and living in predominantly white environments take home every day, okay? Every single day take home way more indignities and microaggressions and slights than we're willing to talk about because our experience with trying to talk about it with white people is consistently met with the fact that it's not going to go well. And to be quite honest, it's just that we're going to risk more punishment for what we said, not less, okay? We're, we're not going to expect understanding. I mean, I'm just being real here, okay? And now what we think about is the fact that, oh, okay, if we do say this or tell this white person what we experienced yesterday on the drive home from work or in Walmart or in so-and-so store or what have you or anything is that we're going to have to end up taking care of the white person's upset feelings, okay? That's what's going to be centered. Because what's going to happen then is me as a black person, I'm going to be seen as a troublemaker because of the feelings that I'm going to hurt while having this conversation. And y'all, that's just so exhausting and not necessary, okay? Like, get out of your little fragile box, white people, all right? And what happens though then is the white person wants to withdraw. They want to defend themselves. They want to explain. They want to insist that maybe what I experienced was just a misunderstanding. And I want you to understand that in that, that white person may not be intending to hurt me or may not be intending to not be helpful, but your intention doesn't matter. What happens in this is I'm telling you about something that I experienced as a black person at the hands of a white person, and then you are defending the white person's actions, and you don't even know the white person. You know me, but you are defending this white person. So I just want you to take that in, okay? As, as a black woman, and again, I can't speak for all black people. I'm not the monolith for black people, but this is something that black people in this country face every single day and it's also what prevents more openness in having conversations um, about racist experiences so if you want to have more conversations about racism with black people with other people of color 
I encourage you not to defend someone else who you don't even know, who's just because they're white, just because it will make you feel more comfortable in that situation. No, that's not okay. Something that I do encourage people to do is to not ever be complacent in the face of racism, in the face of injustice. Don't ever be complacent and assume that it isn't you. Okay, that's dangerous. Just go ahead and assume that it is you who contributes to a painful environment for black people and people of color that you work with, associate with, anything like that. And then continue to ask yourself how it might be you that is perpetuating um, racist ideas or um, problematic behaviors. Because if you keep asking yourself that question and you confront yourself and you just continue to do this more and more, it'll help you, I'm hoping it would help you, become more self-aware of what you didn't know you were actually doing, okay? So, yeah, just don't be complacent in the face of it. Don't assume that because you have black friends or brown friends that you're not part of this system, this oppressive system, because you are. And again, go back to what I said earlier about the definition of racism and what a racist is and fit it into the bigger context. White people, it's not that I'm sitting here saying you're all terrible people. No, but if you become very defensive and you're not willing to open up a conversation about how what you did or said was harmful, then it's going to be a problem for me. And this is where, going back to white progressives, this is what I've seen happening quite often. There is a really good quote Robin D'Angelo said, and it's, change how you understand what it means to be racist, and then act on that understanding. Because if you change your understanding, but you don't do anything different, then you're colluding. I'm actually just going to read that again. (laughs) Change how you understand what it means to be racist, and then act on that understanding. Because if you change your understanding, but you don't do anything different, then you're colluding. This isn't just for you personally. This is for you to also tell your white friends, okay? Because one thing I always notice, too, is that white people want to know, what can I do differently? What can I do to change? What can I do to work towards social justice, towards social reform? Well, it starts with you, you as an individual, you in your heart, okay? It comes, it starts with you coming to terms with the fact that you have been perpetuating racism in the system. It comes with understanding that you as a white person have been experiencing white fragility and that you have been defensive at some point in your life whenever a black person or a brown person told you that what you did was harmful, okay? And it comes with being able to check yourself and being able to not be this, well, that's just not me kind of white person. Let me also add here that whenever it comes to having conversations about what white people can do differently and the harm that white America does, it can be interpreted, as I've experienced, as, well, black people are just never satisfied. Well, white people are always doing something wrong. Well, I've been trying to do my best and it's still not good enough. 
that's the wrong mindset to have with this because if you start trying anything else new in your life, you're going to mess up, okay? You're going to not get it right. You're going to, um, yeah, like you're, you're just going to mess up. And the same thing comes with situations like this. So it's better to be receptive than to completely shut yourself out. Because if you completely shut yourself out and you don't wanna have these conversations in fear of having to be confronted with what you've done wrong, then what are you really wanting to do? That's the question to also ask yourself, is what do you really wanna do then? Are you really wanting to work towards um, change and work towards being anti-racist? Because if you truthfully do, then you've also got to give up that baggage of you're gonna always feel comfortable because you're absolutely not. You're gonna feel uncomfortable people are going to call you out and you're going to have to face exactly what you've done and how it's been harmful because otherwise what are you really doing you know like be honest with yourself and understand also that in this work you're going to have to sacrifice what you're comfortable with you're going to have to sacrifice feelings that you're used to feeling Mm-mm. no you're not sacrifice that as a black woman i've sacrificed many times in conversations. I've had to sacrifice my feelings many times in the past for the sake of white tears. And I've gotten to a point in my life where I've stopped doing that. I've stopped because I still have to live in this country too. I have to live in this world too. And if also bringing in the Christian aspect of it, there's a lot that Christians always want to say about reconciliation and having the hard conversations. And it sounds fine and dandy until you actually have to do it and you realize the what it takes and what you have to give up and the price that you have to pay to actually live that reconciliation that you always want to talk about. So yes, it is about extending grace to people, but grace has its limits. Grace has its limits. And, um, one of the limits is uh, centering white feelings in these conversations whenever there are black people and brown people in this world and in this country who are consistently and continuously being oppressed by a racist system that you as a white person completely benefit from. Now, I'm going to tell you some questions that you can ask yourself or white people um, can ask themselves. First question. Am I using inappropriate humor to deflect in the situation? So one major way that I've noticed white people try to derail conversations about race is to inappropriately inject some type of quote unquote humor. Okay. That's just, y'all, that gets real old. You know, I've seen online whenever a black man was gunned down by police officers and there's a video that's also going viral that shows proof of what happened there will be a white person who posts a picture of like puppies or something okay or they'll post pictures of happy things with a caption that says i've just seen a lot of negativity on on my timeline let's just spread some love let's just spread happier images and these pictures y'all i've i've seen them you may have seen them too 
get thousands of likes, okay? And then people start focusing on these pictures. Meanwhile, I'm sitting over here like, did y'all not just see that video of the black man being gunned down? Did you not just see the video of Philando Castile? Did you not just see the video of Terrence Crutcher? Did you not just see the video of Eric Garner? Like, what's what's going on here? Because what happens in those moments where you're trying to inject humor or some kind of funny picture because you just see negativity is, once again, you don't have any emotional stamina and you're trying to completely deflect and not deal with what's really going on. This has happened to me online. It's happened to me in person with people. I've been in the room before with people where a conversation is happening and we're talking about racism, injustice, that kind of thing, and there's a white person who says something funny or they try to make people laugh. And I don't laugh because right now, your little joke is not funny at all to me because I'm talking about the plight of black people and black pain, and you're trying to excuse that with a joke that's actually not even funny, okay? It's, it's not even funny. You just don't know how to deal with the situation and you don't wanna confront your feelings. That's also not really my problem. So yeah, don't use inappropriate humor to deflect. Another question white people can ask themselves is, am I trying to change the subject? So like when people say black lives matter and then you wanna say all lives matter. And then you wanna say, why are we talking about this whenever we have all these other issues to worry about? So what this really translates to is I'm uncomfortable can we talk about something else? And this actually goes back perfectly to what Robin D'Angelo said about racial comfort. She said, in the dominant position, white people are almost always racially comfortable and thus have developed unchallenged expectations to remain so. When racial discomfort arises, white people typically blame the person or event that triggered the discomfort, usually a person of color. White insistence on racial comfort ensures that racism will not be faced. So, white people, in order to enact change on a large scale, white people need to have painful, uncomfortable conversations about white privilege, white supremacy, and about how they benefit from it all. Otherwise, nothing's going to change. So, whenever a black person or person of color is talking to you about... Um, racism, what have you. Don't try to change the subject. Third question, am I getting defensive or angry? So anger, like I said before, defensiveness, defensiveness, excuse me, like I've said before, are things that I see and I personally experience often whenever I confront people about racial issues. Um, and it seems like they're accusations. As a white person, you can know that white people historically have oppressed and colonized indigenous people, black people, people, people of color, um, genocide, apartheid. You, you can know about all these things. You, you can know about police brutality and read about it and everything else. But I do know that whenever someone says something that's directed towards you personally, yes, it can hurt. You're a human. We're all human. Yes. So our feelings can get hurt, but your feelings need to be 
then like I like you can acknowledge your feelings, but don't center your feelings in the conversation and allow yourself to get so defensive that you're then silencing what um, a person of color or a black person is trying to tell you about racism or their experiences or how you perpetrated racism. And then the last question that white people can ask themselves is, am I going out of my way not to focus on the negative? I am 100% sure that if you have white friends or if you are a white person, then you have said or have heard the phrase negativity in reference to anything surrounding injustices black people um, and people of color face, okay? I'm sure that, that like you've heard it like, oh, well, all of the, all of this about police brutality is just so negative. All of this about um, black women and inequality in the workplace is just so negative. I can't, can we just focus on the good stuff, please? And then I've always also heard, let's just choose love and forgiveness instead of focusing on the negativity because that's not what we're supposed to do. Actually, it is what you're supposed to do. You are supposed to look at what is wrong and not just completely sugarcoat it with love and forgiveness and happiness and sunshine and rainbows. Like, no, that's not going to solve anything. That's just completely putting a blanket over everything, brushing it underneath the rug and not confronting what's really happening. Because we're not focusing on the negative. Okay, you see it as negative because you're a white person. Just because we say something that you don't like or that makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's negative. It's truthful. It's fact. Look, facts are not the best, okay? Truth hurts, all right? There's a whole song about it by Lizzo. Truth hurts. Okay, it's not the same context, but um, but truth hurts, okay? And just because I call out systemic issues and systemic racism and... Um, I point out the issue with police or I point out the issue with anything. It doesn't make it negative. It makes it truthful. And sure, saying things like choose love and forgiveness and happiness, especially after something horrible has happened, it looks and sounds kind of noble, but it's actually just another way to minimize black pain. Yes, it just minimizes pain and recenters white comfort and white feelings. So think about it this way. Whenever you go to a funeral, do you walk in and tell the family who just lost a loved one that they need to cheer up and think positive and don't dwell on the negative? No, you don't walk in and say that. Because if you walked in and said that, people would be like, who is this? And people would also look at you like you don't have any concern for the family and what just happened to them. So if you take that in the same way, why then would you say, oh, well, we should just choose forgiveness and you should think positive and you should cheer up immediately after a shooting or immediately after um we have seen a viral video of a black man being gunned down by police or immediately after um, anything where black people are voicing their pain and um, voicing injustices. That's not, you shouldn't do that. 
I mean, you wouldn't do it at a funeral, right? And people are experiencing pain. So I want you to think about how that plays out in other circumstances and in other situations. You know, we often give people passes because they meant well or because they had really good intentions, but that still doesn't allow them to be held accountable for perpetuating and upholding, well, perpetuating racism and upholding white supremacy. Like I've said before, the end goal of anti-racism is to dismantle this system of white supremacy. It's not just about what racial progress looks like. It's not just about equal representation. It's not, it's not just about those things. It's about dismantling the system. But then in turn, actions that continue to perpetuate racism and white supremacy cannot also dismantle it. And to do anti-racism work or to um, go towards being an anti-racist, it also requires that you identify the fact that white fragility is real and that you could very well be a fragile white person and that you need to approach conversations about racism and injustice without the the want to center your white feelings because it's not about you. It isn't about you. It's about black people. It's about people of color. It's about racism and injustice. And it's about the fact that if we're actually going to continue to talk about wanting change and being the change that we want to see, then do that. Be the change that you want to see. But it's hard because change requires sacrifice. And sacrifice isn't always easy, y'all. It's not. But, you know, this is something that I tell white people and my white friends often is the price of the ticket is high. James Baldwin, <laughs> James Baldwin always said that. He always said in his writings, or well, wrote rather, and he said in speeches and things that the price of the ticket is very high and people don't realize how much it's going to cost them um, in order to achieve uh, what they're hoping to achieve whenever it comes to racial progress. So anyway, as always, I hope that this episode taught you something. I hope that you can take things I've said and apply them to conversations that you have. Go out, tell people, be a change, like actually be a change, but know that it's going to take time. Um, And until next time.